Welcome back to Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson shalom, and John Shalom, shalom. We're <laughs> back in the Old Testament again. That's Happy right. to be finishing up much of Exodus. So before Easter, we talked through Exodus 20, right? The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Uh, Ten Commandments. 20. Yes, sir. And now we're on to really the rest of Exodus, so 21 and on. So, so what happens after the Ten Commandments? You know, this beautiful covenant code just really becomes the, the legal system for these great people as they have their church and state all together. So they have their civil code and their religious code. And I used to look, I used to zoom out and look at Exodus as introduction of the law and introduction of the tabernacle. But their law is their legal code. And so as we start out in 21, we're, we're still dealing with a lot of these rules and regulations. And 22 and 23, the, the duty of servitude. This is fascinating to me. I thought, how many homeless people in our world now would like to sell themselves into being able to work to have a, have a source of li- livelihood? Right. And in the ancient world, the Lord said, you know, if, if you're having hard times— and you're a man, you know, you can serve, you can work for somebody else, but only six years. After that, you got you to serve your own unless you really love the person and then you can choose to serve him for life. But that's your choice, that you're not serving him as a slave after that point. You know, in the Roman system, it was differently, but obviously in the Old Testament, this was very unusual to say, no, s- slavery for life is not good. And they had this beautiful code. However, it is different for the female. I don't know if you caught that in chapter 21 of Exodus, but the female servants do not go out as the males do, it says, because she becomes, as the property of her master, she will bear him children. So she then becomes a concubine and will stay with him, which means he has to take care of her way beyond her years of being able to bear children. If the woman slave or servant does not die in childbearing or does not die in a fire, she has a chance of living a long time in the ancient world. We still have a people living much longer than we do now. And this is really interesting in light of the New Testament, where our beloved Mary of Nazareth says to the angel Gabriel, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, which without the King James English, is, Behold, I will be a servant girl for the Lord, and I will bear his child, and I will be his servant for life. And then uh, she learns, No, you still can marry Joseph, and you still can bear children with him, but not until after the Savior is born. You know, So that rule for females is tying over the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. But in addition to the law of servitudes in chapter 21, we get these cities of refuge. But I just love that God is looking out for the accused and the victims and for the women. And, you know, he he wants to make sure everyone's provided for. And these women are not allowed to be kicked out of the house once they can't stop bearing children. You've got to take care of them for life. And even though it seems a little crazy in our generation because— Women have so many more rights and opportunities to earn money. They didn't in that day and age, and they really were dependent for their livelihood. So uh, these are really beautiful. There's many laws that we question about, but even turning the page over to Exodus 22, these laws of restitution are interesting. I guess they start at the end of 21, don't they? Look at 21, 24, eye for an eye. And that's what we usually think of in the law of Moses. But really, I don't think that we have any examples of 
someone really is, their hand really is cut off because they hurt someone else's hand or their eye is poked out. What, what we have here, I think what the Lord is trying to teach more than anything else is respect for life and this respect for others to treat your neighbor as if it were your own body. You know, I think by having such a stiff penalty shows that he's dealing with people that still haven't learned how to govern themselves. They're still coming out of slavery. They're still brand new out of slavery. And he's trying to teach them to have respect for others and to have respect for their bodies and others' bodies. But it still sounds like a pretty difficult (laughs) law. That law of restitution carries on through 22 and... And it's interesting how, you know, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And when we think of the Law of Moses, we go to 21. <laughs> it's kind of odd. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're all part of the Law of Moses. But I, as I look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's not ex- a lot of examples of, okay, you hurt somebody's eye, you're going to go blind. You know, you just don't see that. I really feel like it is more of this, even though it says life for life, I think the message is we want you to treat things with respect and have this law, the rights of the victim, the rights of the victim are being protected by this. This makes sense. I also really appreciate in Exodus 23, these laws of righteous living. So he has the other side of it, you know, so we have the, if you're bad, this is what's going to happen. But then this higher degree for morality and justice that comes out of 23. I'm looking specifically at verses 14 and 19, where they say, I'd like you to, to have pilgrimages where you dedicate a whole week in your early spring, in your later spring, in your early fall, a whole week to religious purposes, to draw closer to me and to remember the lessons that I've taught you. The first one is the lessons of the Passover. The next one is the lessons of Mount Sinai and the covenant and the day of Pentecost. And then the last one is the lessons, we call it the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's often combined with the Day of Atonement, but they used it later on as a feast of Thanksgiving kind of thing, you know, praying for early rains and grateful that the foodstuffs were able to survive. But it it represents this 40 years of this exodus cycle that I've been hammering home on right. as types of Christ, that that's their feast of their tabernacles. And, and looking at the Book of Mormon, when Exodus 23 talks about these three important feasts, the Book of Mormon, we say, well, if you're an Old Testament text, do we have evidence of these things there? And yes, I see King Benjamin's sermon as spot on. They're in their booths. They're facing the temple. They are carrying out so many of the details that happened at the time of the ancient world during this feast time. And they not only are making covenants, but the law is read. And many times coronations were made during these special pilgrimage feasts when they came back down to Jerusalem. For hundreds of years, these were carried out. And then, of course, after Solomon's time, the northern tribes apostatize and don't come down to Jerusalem anymore. But the Jews and those that were living in the southern tribes were still able to celebrate these wonderful pilgrimage feasts of Passover and unleavened bread for that week, and then the Pentecost or the Feast of the First Harvest, and then the Feast of Ingatherings or Feast of the Tabernacles. I think it's interesting, you know, you, you go through this basically three chapters of here's what not to do and here's what's going to happen if you do it. Uh-huh. And 
Three feasts. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I hadn't put that together. That's a good way for me to memorize that. Yeah. It's like, don't don't forget. Yeah. And also feasts, in 23, right? the Lord gives these promises for the obedient. So in addition yeah. to that, if you want to open up to 23, verse 21, mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee wherever I will lead you. You know, that's 23, 23. I love that verse. And I, I love, I love this one, especially at this time of, of pandemic, Exodus 23, 25. I will take sickness away. You know, if you live my commandments, and certainly that's a blessing in part from living the, the word of wisdom, but as a person who, with all my many, many cancers and other issues, I feel like, no, bad things happen to good people just so that we can become better too. So the sicknesses aren't necessarily taken away from us as they were promised to them in verse 25, but many illnesses would be taken away when we rely on the Lord. And I think we can get through our illnesses when we rely on the Lord. And he is our healing hand. And we can rejoice to know that it's not about this life. It's the next. And then we get all these promises for the pregnancies for both animals and humans that we will be able to reproduce if you live this, that your society will be able to continue on. And then in verse 27, I will make all thy enemies turn their backs unto thee. Well, we don't see a complete fulfillment of that, unfortunately, but I think that just means that they haven't been able to live that law completely, that they are not yet a Zion society. But we're promised that when Zion will be built again, and when Zion was built with Enoch's generation, their enemies could not touch them. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to this, to make all their enemies turn their backs. That is something, hopefully, in our future, that if we can create a Zion society— to prepare for the Lord's second coming, that promise can be fulfilled. And then the last one's in verse 31. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out. The Lord wants to separate out the clean from the unclean. And this separation, even down into verse 34, becomes a theme throughout much of the rest of the law of Moses. I want the clean to be separated from the unclean in their dietary codes, in their moral codes, in who they choose to marry. Why do you think that was so important? Well, how can you carry on to the next generation if you don't have the opportunity to teach your children what is right? If they only know what is wrong, their agency is, is thwarted. And so by intermingling with the unclean, we sometimes lose that opportunity to teach what's right. Because it's really important to God. I mean, he's at, at this time, it might also be because these are the children of Israel and they're hard to learn sometimes. Their lessons are a little right. slow in coming. I don't know. Well, yeah, because, you know, what stands out to me for the law of Moses is the harshness of the punishments. Right? We, oh, we don't, okay. We don't... We don't believe that same thing with the higher law. Well, let's the just same, move same on degree. to the Sabbath and just talk about that one. Yeah, because that's you a really were killed yeah. for disobeying the Sabbath for a short period of time in the law of Moses. Right. Well, I shouldn't say short period of time. It lasted for centuries. They wanted to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath when he was healing on the Sabbath. Right. You know, they didn't understand the Sabbath then. They were, it had been completely... I like to think of it filled with barnacles. You know, there are 10,000 oral laws you know, had just acted as yeah. barnacles and were weighing down the Sabbath. They look past the, but, um, the point, right? This idea of the people, they initially want to accept God's covenant. And they say in, in Exodus 24, 
just like they did earlier, I think it was 19, they said, we'll do all that you say. And here now in Exodus 24, 10, no, 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 that's when that's when Aaron and sees Moses. But the people say, we want to do this. We want to follow. I just don't have the right verse in my fingertips. But he repeats that same thing where the people want to do it. And that's why I think they're in a better position in section, in chapter 24. Oh, there it is. It's verse 3. Do you see that? All the words that the Lord hath said, we will do. There it is. Sec- chapter 24, verse 3. And I think that's one reason they have they have grown in their spirituality. They have increased their faith. They're willing to live strictly these laws, like the Sabbath, so that Aaron and his sons are able to see God in verse 10 yeah. of chapter 24. I, I think that, you know, I'm thinking about the society as a whole, you know, all the way back to Joseph, you know, going into Egypt and then just being there for so long and enmeshing with, with Egypt, right? Yes. But even going... Hundreds of hundreds, years. Hundreds yeah. of years. But, but even, you know, I, I don't want my sons marrying a Canaanite, right? You know, mm-hmm. so this is a common theme mm-hmm. and... Don't marry out of the covenant was so important. Right. And I think a lot of this has to do with, you Although know, I we need, get to I need Ruth and Naomi. I need to set up a peculiar people, right? We always have allowed adoptions in them. Of course. Right. So it's not that he's saying don't marry a race. He's saying marry within the covenant. And that if that means you're Abraham, you just convert. That's right. All adopt these them. People. Yeah, adopt, adopt them, right? them into yeah. the tribes. Yeah, so... Yeah. So I think I think there's so much to be said around that there's a set of rules that the Lord is putting in place with a set of punishments that are tailored exactly to what those people need at that time. That's why they needed a living prophet. Yeah. And that's why we need a living prophet to give us exact direction now. And it just makes me sad when the prophet gives direction for specific things now that relate to us specifically this year and last year and next year. And we say, oh, that's just his opinion, rather than saying, no, this is our Moses or this is our Noah. And he's telling us to get on the ark. And we're saying, oh, that's just a political issue. Or he's just being, no, 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 it's not. It's not. We completely are not appreciating our prophet enough if we are not sitting on the edge of our chairs, listening to General Conference, that we've just been able to enjoy these marvelous messages from so many great leaders who have given us guidelines to live now. Hmm. And these people had different guidelines. How do, we, how do we take the Sabbath more seriously in the higher law? I think this is a big thing with, you know, with modern day. Right? Um, I just go back to five prophets ago, and we were still getting lists of things to do. Yeah. So I appreciate that our prophet says, let's just look to see, is this worshiping God? Is what I'm right. doing my favorite building from, yeah. the kingdom? Is what I'm doing going to be something holy? Or is what I'm doing of the world? You know, and I really appreciate that zooming out instead of zooming in. Because as a nurse, there were many nights that I would go into the hospital to help in the labor and delivery room. When I work nights, uh, you know, I, I just feel like, yeah. no, there is sometimes on a Sabbath when some people are needed. So the lists sometimes don't work for everyone. But I think everyone can work when we use the prophet's guidelines of, is this something that is sanctifying? Is this worshipful? 
Are you serving your God while doing this? Yeah, it, is, I, I love that line so much. And it's, it is nice to look back at this, the scaffolding or the training wheels. Yes, and, you know, we do, like, and we do need those for children especially, I feel. Right. And then when they can make their own decisions by age eight and up, let's encourage them to make their own decisions right. wisely on their knees. Yeah, yeah. I, I think th- there's something very important about that because I, I think what can happen when we— you know, as we saw with the laws of Moses here, that if if we rely overly much on the letters of the law, that can have a corrupting effect over time. Oh, definitely. But it was hundreds of years. Initially, right. he wanted them to obey with exactness on everything. And I totally agree, though. They they missed the message if we are just looking at the law. It can, it can become a grocery list, right? And I love the fact that our Savior, in looking at the law, says it's all about loving God and loving each other. Right. It's all about— It's not a grocery list, right? Yeah, yeah. It's checklist. all about loving. And I feel like continuing on back in Exodus 24, entering into the presence of God is all about loving God as well. Because as I think of it in Nephi's terms— it's going to partake of that fruit, which is so delicious. Nothing else compares with it. And that fruit is the love of God. And that fruit is entering into the presence of the Lord. We feel his love when we enter into his presence, whether it's the love that we feel from the Spirit after a period of repentance or after a period of sacrifice and we're trying to be enlightened, or if it's a period of the Lord rewarding those who have served him as he did with Moses and Aaron with a higher piece of knowledge. More holiness give me comes to mind. And I really love the fact that the temple and the mountain are used so consistently here. They haven't built the tabernacle entirely yet. Well, chronologically, it's sort of tricky in the law of Moses. Everything sort of overlaps and repeats itself because they're all chiasmas. But it is really sweet to see these. I'm looking now at 2414 that Moses rose up and goes into the mount. You know, that this mm. beautiful image of this mountain reaching up to heaven. And he's going into it as if he were going into a tabernacle. And Moses, then we know, um, verse 24, 18, he's in the mount for 40 days and 40 nights. And that may just mean purification or it may mean 40 moons, 40 sunshines, 40 sunsets. But while he's in this mountain, and we're told in revealed scripture and in the Joseph Smith translation that Joseph talks about this in some of his sermons in Nauvoo, that Moses actually receives his endowment. And the children of Israel were not ready. They were not worthy, and they were not seeking it. And the book of Hebrews also talks about this. You know, the the Lord had the children of Israel right there. And they would not ascend the mount. They would, they, they did all, the Lord had done all that for them, and they would not grow spiritually to enter into his presence. And that's why the early Christians are asked, please come up the mountain. Let's, let's try it again. In the book of Hebrews, he says, you know, this was their period of probation, and the Lord has given us another chance. Let's please climb the mount. And then Joseph is given the endowment. And He's told, your people can enter into the presence of the Lord if they will be prepared. Prepare them. And even before the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, he said, if you are prepared, you will see the Lord. That promise has not been given very often at too many dedications that I've ever been a part of. But I believe that 
For most of us, that will happen in the next life. But for some, I do know it does happen now. And that takes us right into building of the tabernacle. Um, starting in chapter 25, we start putting together this sanctuary. I'm looking at verse 8, 25, 8. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So there is the purpose of our temples, that I may dwell among them. Dwell, I think, is the key word there. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you just said that because it reminded me of the Book of Mormon. Mm. Do you remember Lehi's tent is mentioned more often than almost anything else in those first few chapters? It's always, I went to my father's tent. We went there. We read the scripture. We brought the plates to my father's tent. We brought the wives to my father's tent. The Liahona was outside the tent. It's always, well, the word tent is the same as tabernacle. This becomes their new sacred space. That's where they were dwelling. They were dwelling in this sacred space. And so much happened at the door of that tent or tabernacle. The guidance for the Liahona was at the doorway. The doorway is the veil. Right. Oh, I'm glad you said that. That just triggered a nice little I, I just thought. I see this idea of when the Israelites are leaving Egypt mm-hmm. and you have the cloud Coming over the, yeah, by day and yeah, the and pillar by pillar night. It's like representing the spirit. Yeah, that's the Lord. People could say that's the yes. Lord, right? And then clearly they, identifying him. Right. And then and then they needed that, you know, to sort of break did. free of the idols and you know, because they needed it. You know, there's something Hand holding. Yeah, yeah. Because even the Egyptian gods, like, you know, here is a carved idol. This is the god, right? This yeah. is a god. So so no, this is a real thing that you didn't have to carve, right? Yeah. This is a thing. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I see, you know, this tabernacle. This is where the Lord dwells, right mm-hmm. there. You can mm-hmm. point to it. It's right yeah. there. And the fire, the pillar of fire was over the Holy of Holies at that yeah, time. that's right. And I was interested in the way that Moses has recorded this anyway. The Lord first describes the Holy of Holies. That's, that's 25. And so he starts with the most sacred space and works outward rather than outward up to it. Anyway, I was just fascinated yeah. to see that. But it's this beautiful cube, this box, and they're they're giving us the dimensions in from your fingertips to your elbow. You know, so I'm guessing about 18 inches or whatever, but they start with a sanctuary. And it appears that inside this beautiful sanctuary, there's only one piece of furniture. And the rooms, I'm just going to use approximates because I really don't know the, the measurements exactly, but it, it's about 15 cubed. 15 height, 15 wide, 15 square. So it's a perfect cube. And um, there's only one piece of furniture. And that is this beautiful um, piece of wood that's completely covered with gold that is referred to as an ark. And sometimes it's it's called the ark of the testimonies. And most often in the modern world, we refer to it as the ark of the covenant. But the testimonies are in there. The law that was given from God that Moses had to make on his plate since he Broke the other we will. The, you know, in a few chapters, he breaks them, you know. So that is to hold that. And do you remember what else it holds? Because I think it's significant. What is in this ark? What is the covenant? The covenant is the law. And then I love that it's a gold bowl of manna. That it is the Lord. I am your God and I will feed you. I will nourish you. I will give you sustenance. And then it's Aaron's rod. And this hasn't happened yet. We haven't gotten to the chapters about Aaron and the battle over authority, who wants to be authority. But Aaron's rod, you know, buds and then forms even olives immediately to show that he is the Lord's choice as the one who is to have to be the high priest. And those were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And I think it's a beautiful image. And then Tyndale, when he's translating from the Hebrew, he's the one that labels the lid on the Ark of the Covenant as the mercy seat. And that's the throne of God. So this Holy of Holies is the throne room. It represents the throne of God in heaven. And we have this one piece of furniture, which is the throne. And the throne is based on God's law, God's mercy, God's authority, God's nurturing power. It's it's just a beautiful image. And last week in our Easter talk, I suggested that it also is symbolic, perhaps, of the empty tomb with our angels on either end of that mercy seat. Anyway, I just think it's beautiful. And each of the images that they're told, the after the Lord describes the Holy of Holies, he describes the Holy of Place. And by the way, if you look up Holy of Holies, you can't find it. I did it so many times. It's the holy, the most holy place or something like that. You right. know, we, we refer to it by a different name now. But the Holy Place is this much larger room. It's twice as large, actually. So it's two cubes together. It's supposed to represent the Garden of Eden. So one's the presence of the God. And then the Garden of Eden is this holy place. And there's only three tiny little pieces of furniture you know, if, if we are using the measurement from your fingertip to your elbow, the table is like 24 inches by 18 inches. This, and then they overlay it with gold because it's it's to be sacred and never wear down. But you've got the shoe bread table, which they call the bread of his presence with those 12 loaves of the bread that you change out every week and the oil or wine. And then you've got your incense altar that looks like it's about a cubit by a cubit, so 18 inches. And then you have your beautiful candlestick, the menorah. But it's not as big as I guessed when you do those measurements, if it's right. These three pieces of furniture are very symbolic. The menorah represented the tree of life. And so you're back in the Garden of Eden, and you want to be able to partake of the tree of life. And then right before the veil, and the veil is supposed to represent the cosmos, and it had all sorts of embroidery and stars and things on it. Even at the time of the Lord, it was out of fabric— uh, Solomon's temple was out of wood, but the, the the if this is the Garden of Eden, you want to be able to return back and partake of the fruit of the tree without your sins. And so you've already had the altar and the cleansing outside, and now you come in this room to partake of this wonderful fruit without your sins. And then before you go through the veil, the symbolism of the altar of incense is described in a couple of places as the symbolism of prayer. So right before the veil, you have a place where you have a sacred ordinance about prayer. And incense is a... It's always rising to heaven. It's always rising to heaven. It's something you can see. So it's, again, Ooh, it's, nice. that, it's that symbolism. You know, there's the Lord. You can, there's can the Lord my, again. I can see my prayers, right? And what's fascinating to me about incense is this is a universal culture worldwide. You know, incense is... Well, I also think it's from the ancient world because remember the temple outside of the sanctuary, outside of these holy places is a slaughterhouse Mm -hmm. and the smells. It's a place of death. Yeah. The smells would have been horrendous. You have all these animals. You've got to be constantly taking care of the excrement and take care of the, yeah, I I think incense would have also helped with the smells of things. But these are sacred incenses. You know, they're, they're made out of the frankincense and they're made out of things that have a lot of symbolism later on. There's something about incense and sacred spaces. Mm-hmm. That is universal. That is universal. I do universal. agree. Yeah, we see that in so many other faith traditions around the world. Anyway, I love chapter 20, Exodus 25. It's just such beautiful descriptions. You get a little bit 
overwhelmed when you get into the curtains and the veils that are separating everything in 26 and how many hooks and stuff. But I really appreciated one of my favorite scholars on the temple is Margaret Barker. She's a, a Methodist who teaches at, well, she uh, actually doesn't agree with everything, but she teaches at a, she used to teach it in England, not in Oxford, but Cambridge. Cambridge. She was in Cambridge. Yeah. Thanks. And she has become a close friend, and I actually got to take her through the open house of the Paris Temple. Oh, very cool. Um, but as we were talking about the curtains and the veils, she has written that the tabernacle was put together in the order of creation. And so to separate out light from darkness, you first start with the heavy coverings. And then you go through the different days, and when you get to the most holy part, you're then putting the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Man is created, and God and man's relationship is now there described by the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so each day of the seven days of creation was rebuilding the tabernacle in seven days, paralleling the creation. Interesting. So you have a sacrifice of grains when the grains are growing, and you have a sacrifice of animals when the animals are on the earth. You know, So it was really helpful for me to see Margaret Barker's thoughts on, on that. But of course, the Ark of the Covenant should be not only in the most sacred space, but it should be, I believe, in the center of Israel's lives. I live near Stanford University, and when Jane Stanford wanted to build it, the university, in the very center, she did not put a library, she did not put the medical school, she put the church. Our beautiful memorial church is the center of the Stanford University, and I hope in our own hearts and lives, I, I know Brigham Young did the same thing, didn't he, in Salt Lake? The temple will be the center point, and all streets will go from there. That's what I see the Ark of the Covenant in our lives. We have to have our covenants with our God and the presence of God in that center place. And then we go on to the priests, the consecration of the priesthood. So this, I think, is an interesting thing because we're, we've been talking about places. Yeah. Right? Um, now we're talking about people. people. But it's all about the sanctification, isn't it? This it's is all a new about thing. becoming holy. This is a new holy. thing, though, right? You know, I, yeah. I don't see a precedent for this outside of the you know, singular prophets, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yeah, Moses. but now it's to raise this whole people to be a people of priests and priestesses. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That's really beautiful. Because the congregation is asked to be consecrated. Everybody is asked to prepare for these things. Everyone has said, gather together and let's be purified. And then, of course, by chapter 29, 28 and 29, Aaron and his sons are going to be clothed or washed and clothed and anointed to become priests. Everybody's in white except the high priest. Mm, what's he wearing? Uh, well, it's sort of beautiful. You know, it looks like he's supposed to be back in the Garden of Eden. He's got um, pomegranates embroidered on his blue over vest, and he's got the beautiful 12 stones on his breastplate representing the 12 tribes, and then the Urim and Thummim he keeps in he his out. little pouch. <laughs> Not only does he stand out, but he is representing, I believe, at least Paul has taught us, that the, there is one great high priest, and that is Jesus Christ. And that the high priest was just a type of him. And so he's trying to do those things that Christ would do. So as the high priest takes upon himself the sins of Israel, so our great high priest, Jesus Christ, will take upon himself the sins of Israel. I like, I want to read just two short verses. Great. Exodus 28, and thou yeah. shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and beauty. 
Glory right? and beauty. Mm-hmm. And uh, thou shalt, this is three, and thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. Those so, who are wise-hearted. Yeah. Can we please put our work into building the kingdom? <laughs> if you're wise-hearted, let's build the kingdom. I was just thinking, you know, let he that has ears to hear, let yeah. him hear, right? I think you were part of my institute class when we had apostles come to talk to our Google leaders. Were you Were you there then? Maybe not. I think anyway, so. my son was working for Google at the time, so I have, I have the, oh, when they, the story. When, uh, I think it was a little bit Yeah, I came. Yeah. We had two, actually, that came. And, and one of the messages that they gave when they had a short little meeting with employees at Google who belonged to our faith, they were told, you may get a paycheck from Google, but you always work for God and never forget it. That was a beautiful reminder that let's not value our jobs, our careers, our desire for money so much that we think we're working for them. No, we are God's servants doing what is required by our employers, but we work for God. I think that's such an important mentality. You know, this is one of the things I've learned from being an entrepreneur a little bit is, you know, before I was an entrepreneur, of course, working a job, and I don't want to stress this analogy too thin, but th- that that reminds me of this idea of who really owns you, right? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. who who do you who work, has bought you back? Who's bought you back? So g- going back to uh, keeping the Sabbath, yes. right? It's that, you know these things like who who are we? Where's our heart? Where's our worship? Yeah. Um, and so the, the one of the nice things about just being an entrepreneur, just this minor perspective shift, which has changed so much, is you know you don't work for anybody as an entrepreneur. Like, that's not what you do. You work with lots of people, right? Okay. And so whenever I've had to go back to employment, it's always been as a sort of a contract or something of like that nature. It's like, mm-hmm. I always work with someone. You know, so, so I, you know, those, those comments resonate with me. It's like, never forget you work for God. for God. Well, and that's what the priests are doing. They are completely committing themselves, especially Aaron and his sons, to be God's servants. And I like that image that you were talking about. I work with for God. Um, in the light of, I don't passively receive his blessings when I ask for them, but I actively do his bidding all the time. And that's what we see in chapter 29. And um, they're starting with verse four, Aaron and his sons, thou shalt bring to the door of the tabernacle and the congregation, and they shall wash them with water. And thou shalt take the garments and put them on on Aaron. And then he goes through them, the coat, the robe, the ephod, the breastplate, the girdle, and then going on to the mitre or some sort of a a hat. And then in verse 7, you're going to anoint them on the head with this holy anointing oil. And that's the word Messiah. Anything that's anointed is becomes a Messiah. And you anoint the altar, you anoint the menorah, you anoint the priest. Anything that is going to be consecrated is an anointed one. But there is the promised Messiah. And when I first started studying Hebrew, I was sort of offended when I learned that the word Messiah meant smear, smear with oil. But I think that was just one lexicon's definition. I really love the idea of anything anointed is going to be sanctified, is going to be sacred, is going to be set apart to do something holy. And all these words have such beautiful meaning when we look at the consecration of Aaron and his sons, that they've They have to go to the altar and take the blood from the altar. And it's always ironic that holy blood that has been sacrificed in a burnt offering or a peace offering or a sin offering or a wave offering or a heave offering, holy blood that is sprinkled purifies one. 
it's so ironic. Spilling blood, all of you, is not a purification process, you know. But if it's if it's sacred blood, if it's sacred life, and that's really a message of, of Exodus, isn't it? That life is sacred. And of course, the we're constantly reading about the um, taking the blood and sprinkling it, uh, touching the horns of the altar, which I right. think is such a great image. It is. Horns I, you know, for the power of God, the power of the atonement, the power of this atoning sacrifice. I'm looking through Exodus 29, you know, just over these verses yes. and, you know, and, you know, like you're talking about the blood and, and, you know, the, the ram being sacrificed. And I can't help but think of the Abrahamic covenant. And this, for me, this is such a wonderful crossover of everything we've talked about, just the incredibly clear symbolism of the Savior. Oh. And in this, for me, just the incredibly clear link to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, which goes all the way back to to, to Adam, our Savior, right? Yeah. So from so from, oh, from Adam, Adam, of course, from Adam, to, Adam the Savior. to the Savior. Yeah. This this is for it's me. Exodus thing. is where this really this links this so clearly. You know, Adam to the Savior. I want you to be my fall, people. Fall to the atonement. Yes, right? it's all thanks to the atonement. And and as long as we're mentioning the Abrahamic covenant, we need to mention the Abrahamic sacrifice. And these sacrifices were made in similitude to the Savior, just as Isaac was offered. Yeah, it's just so, it's it's wonderful to read this and just have those yeah, two things Yeah, and look at the end of 29. I also like this. Together. Verse 44, I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons. You know, sanctus, holiness, holiness to the Lord. Um, it's such a great image. And then ending up in 45, I will dwell among the children of Israel. Where I started saying, this is the theme of the temple. I will dwell with them. That's it right there. One one of the many things. And then so much of the rest of Exodus deals with the beautiful details of the temple altars and the incense and the half shekel and the ransom and and how we're washed. You know, these these washings and these anointings are all part of this initiation of the priests in order to help them become better and more holy, but it's 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 in preparation for something more, and but, uh, we see that in our own temples. Let me ask you a question: What does it mean to be sanctified to you, so especially sanctus, around the, especially yeah, around yeah. the temple? So, sanctus to become holy, to set apart, to dedicate to what's another word for it? Sanctus has a lot of beautiful definitions, both in Latin and in the Greek and in the Hebrew. The roots of that. So, to be set apart or sanctified is, I really feel. It, it is being cleansed by our Savior. It is to make holy. To I, I have been set apart for this job, and now I am not worthy on my own to do it. I cannot be cleansed on my own. I need to be made holy through my Savior, Jesus Christ. So the only way—in fact, I had a little—one of my sons was very, very good at math— about age three, he figured out that anything times infinity was infinity. <laughs> and he'd go around, what's 575 times infinity? <laughs> you know, I mean, he just was so proud of himself knowing the, all these big numbers. And I see the Savior as our infinity. Whether we're bringing two or one or five billion, when we times it times our Savior, it's okay. It's infinity. And our Savior is, is this number that we just have to attach to in order to get through. So for me, sanctification I is, see that. Is, yeah. is my widow's might. It's taking what I have and putting it on the Lord's altar. And then he, as the sacrificial lamb, will purify and help 
remove the blemishes so that I can then be sanctified. I too can become holy, but only because I am touching him. Do you remember that yeah. verse? Uh, where, I can do all that things verse? to the Lord who strengthens me. Is kind of oh, what I love of. that one too. Yeah, yeah. No, there was of. one other right here in this last part of Exodus that says, anything that touches that which is holy will become holy. And that's that's powerful. But we've got to also zoom ahead a little bit to Exodus. Well, first of all, Exodus 31 is where they say there's the death penalty for the Sabbath, right. which really helps us understand that the, the, the scripture says, I, yeah, not only the gravity of it, but he said, people will be identified. The token of my covenant is how you keep your Sabbath. So if people had to judge me by how I kept my Sabbath, I hope I could Makes me want to do a better job. Oh, it makes me want to do a better job. But 32 is what I wanted to get to. And 34, this courtyard is being raised. The courtyard is where all the Israelites are. And they had the altar outside so that you could go through this purification, this this washing and cleansing outside before you enter in. And now it's interesting in our temples, we have moved the temple inside where we want Israel to come. And the the brass was outside, the gold was inside. And now we have our separations inside. But our temples are really interesting in light of I understand my temple worship better by understanding the, the tabernacle here in Exodus. And it is so humbling to me to think that the priesthood that the Lord gave them only to their one high priest who is serving for life once a year, I can have any time I want to don the clothes, be willing to live the commandments and go before the Lord and enter into these sacred rooms that were absolutely forbidden for everybody else. Just powerful. And it's the Joseph Smith translation of 34 that tells us, no, there was a higher law given. Everyone was invited into the presence of the Lord, but they weren't worthy. So we're, we're working now with just the priests. And once again, the Lord's timing is often our preparation. So the, anything else you want to add on Exodus? Yeah, just one last thing. I, I think you to, to wrap up kind of the sacred thought, the there's so much symbolism throughout this Exodus chapter, and the Lord is setting these up on purpose. And we see this come to fruition in the Savior's time. Mm-hmm. And that's so valuable to me to read. You know, I, I don't know what it's like to sacrifice a lamb. I don't know what it's like to raise one, you know, and, and to see that. But these words that I read and, and this idea of taking people out of Israel and refining these as people to prepare for the way this for the Savior. Yeah. Takes hundreds of years. Yeah. But, but here we are. And so and so here we are in the latter days. Yeah. You know. Looking back. Looking back and also looking forward. Like, you know, it's gonna yes, take some time. It is looking forward. Because going back to that idea of the Exodus cycle, we're That's looking right. forward because I see the tabernacle being built as one of those steps in that forty years of purification that testifies of Christ. This is the house of God. And this is where God dwelt with them after they left Sinai. You know, it's the portable Sinai. And it is where the Lord will dwell later as well. And we can use it on our own type of Christ, uh, as our own type of plan of salvation, as well as seeing our Savior in the temple when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. So the tabernacle that is built by them, I see symbolizing our Savior as his body becomes the source of godliness. And when his body was killed, his godliness was right. rebuilt. And we see this with the veil being 
torn as well. Exactly. All are allowed to enter into the presence of the Lord with the tearing of the veil. Yeah. So, so keeping the commandments is, is, and, you know, participating in these ordinances is it's how to help we, us become. Yeah, it's help exactly. That's that's what I'm about. It's not a checklist. It's it's, it's the, becoming more holy. It's becoming sanctified. Yeah, and for me, the opposite of sanct- sanctification in the modern world is is the ordinary, not so much the mm. defiling. It's mm-hmm. it's it's making everything common, it's, mundane, yeah, yeah, mundane, and and to set aside and to purify and to sanctify. I think, and that it, helps us keep our Sabbath day. Yeah, we, let's we have not to, do the ordinary. Right. Yeah, yeah, let's stay vigilant. You know, let's let's at least fast from our Facebook accounts on that day, <laughs> if, unless you're doing your visiting teaching or something. I'm <laughs> <laughs> ministering, that's, ministering. That's a good idea. <laughs> oh, Exodus is a great book. I hope not only has your temple worship increased, but your sacrament service and our understanding of our Savior. Yeah. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye.